hi, my name is uh, Blanca Esmeralda Medina Montaño. It's Irish. No, <laughs> it's Mexican. I mean, you can call me Ezzy, and I'm an alcoholic for sure. I'm also a drug addict. Um, and I have, what, 10 minutes to tell a really long story, so I'm going to talk fast, okay? Um, welcome. I guess Paul's no newcomer. If there, are, if there are any newcomers, welcome. I didn't always raise my hand when I was a newcomer, so um, yeah, just putting that out there. Um, okay, I'm just going to qualify really quick, and then I'm going to get into my low bottom, and then I'm going to jump into recovery, because I think that's the most important part, so I like to focus on that. But just so you know that I'm one of you, I'll tell you my, my resume. I've been, um, I've been homeless because of drugs. I've been, I made a fool of myself. I've gotten kicked out of places. I've been raped. I've been kicked. I've been beat up. I've been broke. I've been um, in jail 13 times. I've been incarcerated. I've been uh, 51 50 three times. I've been to about 11 rehabs, uh, 30 day stays, and one was for six months. <laughs> Um, I've lost friends, family, jobs, so many jobs. Oh my God. They used to take bets on how long I'd last. You know, my family, they'd have a little betting pool going like, oh, she'll be there three weeks. Oh, maybe a month. I never lasted very long because my drinking was always more important. Um, I started drinking when I was 11. I know late bloomer. Okay. But, um, some people, <laughs> they thought that was pretty young and it was. And I'd also like to mention something else. Um, this is just because simply statistics, I think there's a strong correlation between sexual abuse and drinking, for women at least. And uh, that is that I was sexually molested by a family member from, why am I hiding? His name was Javier, <laughs> he's my uncle. Um, and uh, he molested me or raped me from the time I was five till I was 11. And I've always found it interesting that I started drinking when I was 11 because that's when the abuse stopped. You know, so, um, but my, my, um, my addiction actually took off way before that. I think my first escapism was books. You know, I love to read books and get out of my head and into um, whatever story was, you know, I was reading and they were kids books, you know, cause I was like seven or eight. I don't know. Um, they were like Encyclopedia Brown and Judy Bloom and things like that. But I love to read, you know, and I would just, I wouldn't even play at recess. I would just read books. I would sit by the classroom door when it was recess and just read my book and I wouldn't play with the other kids. And I don't know if that was because I didn't want the kids to know me because at the time I was being molested and I was, I was very ashamed of that. So I didn't want to get to know people. I didn't want people to get to know me. You know, um, I didn't have uh, sleepovers or play dates and things like that. You know, my family, um, they, they were real hard workers. Both my parents worked three jobs or two jobs and went to school at some point or another. And I was, uh, I was often, you know, um, a latchkey child or being watched by someone very unqualified, obviously. Anyways, um, so yeah, so I started drinking when I was 11. By the time I was 15, I had a full-blown cocaine habit, you know, and I did that for about 10 years. Somewhere in between there, I got my shit together. I went to the army, more drinking. <laughs> they really encouraged the drink with alcoholism. And so I drank a lot. And I got out of there with a, with an honorable discharge, but it wasn't really the plan. You know, um, they found out I was gay and they, um, they asked me to leave. So I left with an honorable discharge, but it was, they kicked me out in essence. And I was really upset about that. I was really mad, so mad that I went to, um, I moved to San Francisco, you know, 
And, and when I moved to San Francisco, I discovered crystal meth and that's when all hell broke loose. I lost everything, you know, uh, what, what cocaine and alcohol took about 20 years to, to do to me, you know, crystal meth did in three weeks. I lost everything down to my shoes. I was in jail. They took my shoes. So that was my, that was probably like the lowest I'd ever been. You know, I was, I was about a year. I slept in, you know, mute on Muni and in BART station storefronts on market street, uh, crack hotels, like the international and the chase hotel on ninth and market. And that's what I did. When I got arrested, it was the longest stretch of time I'd ever done. And it also arrested my disease. And that's when I first found recovery. They sent me to a court mandated program for six months. And I stayed sober for two years. And my story is one of constant relapse. It was off and on, off and on, off and on. But I'll tell you what, that, that rehab changed my life. It was a 12-step program in the avenues. And I lived there with a bunch of women, ex-cons. I didn't have shit. I, I had a job that paid like three bucks an hour. I worked at Noah's Bagels. But I felt so happy, so proud of myself, so good. You know, I felt like there was so much inner goodness within me that was found. And I hadn't felt that way in years. You know, I had a sponsor and, uh, and I had friends in recovery. And I just made it my whole life. And, you know, good stuff happened. I got a job. I got a good job. I met somebody. You know, we got married. I had a daughter. As you can see from my profile picture, I have three kids. The, the oldest one was with that woman that I met while I was in rehab. You know, we, we had a good time. Things got good. And then, um, and then you know, shit happened. And then I found out she was cheating on me one day. And, and I said, well, I'm going to drink. Because I had already made my mind up. That was my reservation. If my mom died or if my wife's cheating on me, I would probably drink. People ask me all the time, so you're never going to drink? You know, my normie friends, so you're never going to drink again? I said, probably not, no. But I had those reservations in my mind. Those things would be so bad that they would cause me to drink. That was my excuse. And so those things happened. And so I strongly recommend that if you have reservations on your recovery, don't. Because those things will happen. People will die. People will cheat. Marriages will end. Jobs will be lost. And if you have those reservations, guess what? Your recovery, it, it's smarter than you. you know. So it, it already has... A, a way in your mind to, to give you that out. Don't do that. Just, I belong to the no matter what club. I literally have a coin that says, no matter what, no matter what, I'm not going to pick up no matter what, no matter how bad things get. And you guys showed me that because I've seen you walk through, I mean, fires, you know, I've seen you walk over hot coals and, and you get through it just fine sober. And so when I'm going through something like that, I go to you and I say, you know, Hey, how did you get through that? And you, and you hold my hand and you show me. And, and that's where I'm at today. You know, I've got two and a half years. I'm very proud of that. It's the longest time I've ever had sober. And I, I was, thank you. And I was able to keep my, um, and I was able to keep my job through those, through those few relapses that I've had in the past 12 years. I've worked for the same company for 12 years. It's a good company. I don't know how, I don't know why they forgive me, but my boss says I have good credit there. <laughs> so when I fuck up, he's like, that's okay. You've got good credit. I guess I do well when I, when I do well, we're amazing people, alcoholics. We, we, I mean, we perform miracles, you know, and, uh, and I perform three and I'm talking about my children. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but I have the best kids in the world. I have the best friends in the world and, uh, and I've got a good job and I've got all this stuff, but more importantly, I have like me, you know, I have my higher power and I have a connection. I have faith. I have hope. I have things that money can't buy today. And that's, those are things that like, you know, I always wanted in my life. I always wanted good friendships, people who love me for me, not because what kind of car I drove or what kind of, you know, but, um, 
that's my two minute warning. Thank you. <laughs> but, um, you know, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams and it may not look like much from the outside. It may look pretty, pretty average to, to some people, you know, mediocre, but you know what, like, this is monumental for someone like me. I never thought I'd live past 30. I'm 52 years old, you know, and I don't look like what I've been through. And I know people say that all the time. I'll say it. I'm proud of that. Thank you. I don't look like what I've been through. Cause if I did, I look like fucking shit on the floor. Um, I've been through some some horrible, I've been literally through hell, but I'm here and I don't think it's anything about me or us, or I, I really believe, truly believe that is just my higher power. There's there's a purpose that I'm not even aware of yet, but I'm gonna stick around and find out. I like helping newcomers. I like reaching out to people. I love seeing that light go on in them. Those are the kind of things that make me happy today. Those are the kinds of things I, I write on my gratitude list and I write a gratitude list almost every day. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I could say a lot of good things about AA, but I think the most important thing is that you have to make your mind up to do it. You know, like this is so strong. This is the most powerful, powerful muscle in our body. And if you really want this, it works. It works. I'm here to say that. Um, I never thought anything could save me from my addiction. I really didn't. I, I thought I'd end up in jail or I'd end up dead. And I just, it was a matter of when, you know, I never thought I'd have love or, or children or, uh, you know, just anything like that was, that was pure and good and innocent. And it's wonderful being a parent. It's been such a blessing in my recovery because I get to, I get to do my childhood all over again. And I get to treat my children the way I wish I would have been treated and protected and loved and not shamed. Not that my parents were bad parents. They weren't, they were just, they just were doing the best they could with what they have. And I think a lot of us, you know, do a little bit better than our parents did. And that's like the goal. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. He still is. He's still in his addiction. My mom is deceased. Um, but, but that's okay. You know, I'm going to get through this. I can't believe I've gotten through the past two years with my, when my mom passed away, I just wanted to die. I relapsed, you know, and, and now it's like, I know I can get through it because you showed me how. I came into AA because I wanted a better life. I'm staying in AA because I got one. You know, it's a life beyond my wildest dreams. This is my, 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 I don't want to say tribe. That's, but like, I found my people, you know, my posse, as David likes to say. Um, and it's you guys. And it's, I mean, literally it's the people from the late show. I went to the late show one night during COVID. And this is like the, been the only meeting, not this one, cause this isn't the late show, but there, you know, there's a meeting called the late show at 10 o'clock and I see all the same people. Um, those people, I've never had a home group, really, you know, I've never claimed a home group and I claim them and uh, I, I would pretty much do anything for them. And I know they do the same for me. That's how this program works. We don't do it alone. What a concept. I want to thank you so much for asking me to speak, Laura. It's been an honor and a privilege. It always is when someone asks me to speak in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love you all. And um, thank you for listening to my share. Uh, I'm Paul, recovering alcoholic addict. Just had time to uh, take a, well, I pull up the Venmo app and, and get a get a shot of that URL, uh, whatever the hell the code is. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Laura, um, for the service that you do and for asking me to speak. Um, when you first, when you originally texted me and I said, of course, I didn't read the text completely. And then today, when you sent me the reminder. I'm like, fuck, it's 45 minutes. 
never spoke for 45 minutes before, but uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it the old college try. So um, I was born in 1963 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to two wonderful people um, that raised six children. And out of the six of us, only two were born in the same state. And that was Akron, Ohio, along with both my parents were born in Akron, Ohio. And our last name was Smith, but no relations to Bob. I know Akron very well, and I've been back there many times and visited a lot of the um, historic historic spots and, and have attended meetings in, at St. Thomas's Hospital and, and prayed in St. Ignatius Chapel. Um, but what, was, what it was like, well, in seventh grade, a girlfriend wanted me to, we wanted me to pick up some pot for us to smoke. I hadn't, wasn't drinking or smoking at that time, other than the slow gin fizzes that my nanny, my, uh, my grandmother on my mother's side, Geraldine Sudler, that, um, she would, she would give us kids slow gin fizzes. And I really doted on nanny, um, so much so that she let me make my own slow gin fizzes. And let me tell you, mine were a lot deeper purple than hers. Let me tell you, I really liked it. Um, but it, it was just kind of in the background until seventh grade when I, I picked up the pot for the girlfriend and we smoked it. And then it just seemed to just snowball from there. I just, um, I remember we, we go camping uh, every Memorial Labor Day with this group of families. And it started out through CFM and Focus, which is a Christian family movement and families of Christians understanding and sharing. And that's where my wife and I probably met each other for the very first time. And we just celebrated 35 years, August 1st. Um, but where was I going with that? Well, um, God, I forgot where the hell I was going with that. Anyway, anyway we go camping uh, twice a year group of families and I'm sorry I lost, totally lost my train of thought there anyway um seventh grade oh that's right so some friends the year before offered to smoke some pot with me at the camp up I'm like no 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 I don't do that but then the next year after the seventh grade I've got the pot and I've got the booze and they're like whoa what happened <laughs> it's like total transformation to Paul and um, you know, it was, it, it just really, really did snowball. Um, I, I was a good student up until that time. And then after that time, it's like, I just, I just wanted to, to pass. I was never, I remember I was in high school at one point and some friends of mine were giving me shit for only getting passing grades. So I made the Dean's list once one, um, semester. And to prove to them that I could, I could get a, a 3.0, I think is what it took to get on the Dean's list. And after that, I'm like, oh, I can't get, I, I proved myself, I don't have to do it anymore. You know, so I just went and sat back and coasted after that. I mean, in high, I went to Bushville Down High School, class of 82, and our 40th anniversary is in a, in a month. And um, we started a drinking team called The Sponges. And we had a song, it was like, it was, uh, it was the Queen. It was it was the Queen song, and we're like, we are the sponges. We drink everything. We soak up everything. Yada 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 yada. And we were really bad. And I remember my my future wife went to the same school. And she was two years below us, below, below me. And um, she re, she remembers 
um, that I was a bad boy and she never would have dated me in high school. Matter of fact, when, my, when both our children, when, actually when my son, he's, he's the oldest of our children, uh, I have a daughter younger, uh, we were taking him to Odell for orientation and uh, my wife Miriam's PE teacher, Mrs. McCabe was in the hallway and she, she, she recognized Miriam and she recognized me. And she said to Miriam, you married him? I'm like, I'm right here. And my, my son's like, can we leave dad in the car? Because <laughs> I had that kind of reputation. Um, so after seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, it just continued on in, in high school, of course, with the drinking team, it just continued on. And it got to a point where my dad was coming down hard on me. And finally, I said, you know, I don't need this. So I, I moved in with a friend of mine a, a block away. We lived in Piedmont on Grand Avenue and, and Ted lived a block, a block further away. His mom had died a couple years before and his parents were divorced. So the house was left to him and his sister. And um, I moved in there and I was only there for a couple months before my dad put a, a note on my card asking me to come talk to him. So I went and talked to him. He wanted me to come back home. I said, sure, I'll come back home, but there's, uh, there's, there's going to be one criteria, and that's going to be there's no rules. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me when to come in, when to, when to show up, you know, nothing. I got no rules, and he agreed to it. It was probably the worst decision he ever made, and it's the worst thing I ever forced someone to do. It was, it was truly an unconscionable act. And I, I, regret, I regret having done it. I have made a ninth, a ninth step amends to my father and my mother. Uh, my mother has passed and my father has um, got severe dementia and is, from what the hospice nurse said two, three days ago, he thought that he wasn't long for this earth. So I'm going back there to Minneapolis on the 8th to I don't know if, if, you know, to say my goodbyes, yes, but, you know, um, I see him electronically from my, my sister that is taking care of him back there. It's Facebooks. I mean, not Facebook. FaceTimes with us sometimes. And he's still sweet, but he just doesn't recognize anyone. He doesn't know, you know, what's going on. It's, it's really sad. He, he, I mean, he's got a, a PhD in, in uh, civil engineering. And uh, it's just a, a, a genius type mind. Um, it's really just sad to see it gone, but you know what? That's life. We have to accept it. And, and, and that's what we've done. We've, um, they had an apartment house down by the lake and they got sued be because they had, um, forced a tenant out and moved in. And then before three years, they decided to leave and they didn't offer the apartment to the tenant. So we got stuck with about a half million dollar lawsuit that we had to pay for. So the four of us siblings that um, could afford to basically put in, put in the money to pay off um, the lawsuit. And um, that wasn't an easy thing to do, um, for me at least. Uh, I had to threaten to, um, I, I had to tell my wife, okay, you don't want to re refinance the house so I could put in money um, to my, um, for my family so that we can pay off the, this lawsuit. Fine, buy me out of the other house, because we moved in nine years ago to care for her parents and that's where we're living right now. 
we have our original house over in Glenview District that my daughter's living in. And she, you know, she wasn't willing to refinance it so I could get just $50,000 to put in to say that I contributed. My other siblings were able to contribute a lot more, obviously. But I needed to be able to say I contributed something. And finally, I'm like, fine, you, you buy me out of my half percentage of the house so that I can pay into my family's lawsuit. And eventually she agreed to, to refinance it, uh, which turned out uh, to be a real godsend because we did it just before COVID. So therefore we didn't refinance just for 50, we refinanced for more. So that really helped a lot. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just jumping all over the place here, but um, I'm, I, some things just come to me. I, I was gonna take notes. I'm like, you know what, you just gotta let it flow. And, and that's the way I, I do all my shares. I just try to let my higher power come through me. So I came back home and my drinking and using just got worse and worse. I was working at a gas station, Desert Petroleum within, I, I mean, our house is on one corner and kitty corner is the, is the gas station. And before I even worked there, my buddy Ted taught me how to embezzle money from the gas station by taking the cover off the gas pump and, and prying the wheel that counts the, 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 the gallons, pry the wheel away from it and then spin it backwards and then cook the books and then take the cash. And we did that, uh, we did that for at least a year, he and I both. And they came out and they thought there was a, a, a leak in the tank. And then they, they caught the auditor embezzling. So all our money that we had stolen got lumped in with the money that the auditor had been stealing so and, and that's an amends that desert petroleum is not, not even in in existence anymore so I, I i make i make my financial amends in a different way um for that for that amends um and it just progressed and progressed and progressed when i asked my wife when my wife and i were dating I told her I wouldn't ask her to marry me until I was clean, until I was clean for six months. I wasn't, we weren't shooting for sober. <laughs> Just that I wouldn't be smoking pot anymore. And you know what? Um, I didn't hope, I didn't follow through with that. I asked her to marry me and I had, wasn't clean. And she said, yes, we were engaged for two years and then we got married. Um, and things were, you know, nice for a while. Um, my son was born. I was there totally present for my son's birth. But when my daughter was born, I had a bag of blow back home. And all I wanted to do was get back to that bag of blow. And it didn't matter that my daughter had just been born. I was probably in the, uh, in the hospital, maybe two hours before I, I found some excuse that I could get out of there. And, um, you know, that, that's something I can never make an amends for to my wife, which I, I'm, I've done my best, but since she's in the program too, she tends to critique my amends. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it came down to uh, that I, at one point, I had um, a spermatic seal that had to be removed. And I thought, I know, if I go under the knife and I'm on a bunch of blow, maybe I'll die on the table. So that's what I did. I hired a homeless woman to impersonate my wife so I could get a loan 
so I could buy the Coke, so I could then go under the knife on Coke and, and die. Well, it didn't happen. I, I got out of the surgery and I was fucked up. I thought the whiskers on my face were parasites and I thought they were migrating across my face. So I did what any normal alcoholic would do. I took out the camcorder. I found a Sharpie. I drew a line of demarcation and I videotaped them. And I was convinced that they were migrating across my face. And I showed my wife the video and she said, what the fuck is going on? So I admitted to her, you know, that I was drinking and using and that I was a mess. I mean, I couldn't keep $10 in my wallet before running down to the dealer and, and, and getting something. And it, it always started with the alcohol. It's like, I'd be, I'd, I'd say to myself, no, 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 you're not going to do it. You're not, you know, you're not, you're going to, you're going to be good for a day or you're going to be good for two days. And then I get a, a beer in me or two beers or three beers. And I'm like, you know what would really go well with this, you know, line of blow or, you know, go to the dealer. And it didn't matter what he had, whatever he had was good enough for me. As long as I didn't have to put a needle in my arm. So, so she said, you know what, if you don't put yourself into Kaiser CDRP program, I'm going to take the kids and I'm going to leave. So I was already on disability for the, for the surgery. So I figured, okay, I'll go in full-time this time. This is, this is actually the second time I, I had been in CDRP. The first time I really, I, I really didn't do it. I only went in after work and I butted heads with every counselor down there and they kicked me out before I really should have even graduated. And I was dry for a couple of years, but it was, it was not sobriety. This time around though, I was a really, I was a good student. I listened to what the counselor said. I had a great case manager, um, Alan Foster, love that man. And I was going to seven or eight, um, 12 step meetings a day, AA and NA. And it got to a point where Alan and Miriam sat me down and said, you know, can you cut it back to say maybe three or four meetings a day? And that's what I, I cut it back to three or four. And I was riding my bike everywhere. I was in great shape. And I was, I would, but I was having these drinking dreams. I'd wake up just with the most vivid dreams that I'd lost my sobriety. And I'd roll over at my wife and say, honey, did I go out? Did I lose my sobriety last night? She's like, no, you've been here all night. So I, the anxiety was so great that I would just get on my bike and I'd ride straight up Redwood Road. We're, um, we're right by Redwood Road here. And uh, just the, the steepest, hardest hill I could find just to exhaust myself physically so I could get that, so I could some, do something with that anxiety. And, and it worked for me. Um, a side note, my mother at 70 rode her bicycle across the United States from San Diego to Florida. So anyway, <laughs> so, so that's this time around that was, I, I went in, my sobriety is January 13th, 2005. And um, I've had multiple sponsors. There was a time where I was just kind of coasting and my, one of my younger brothers um, caught a case of aggravated assault. And when we were in the, law, the lawyer's office, she brought up the fact that, you know, alcohol had a lot to do with him. Um, getting charged. And I agreed to take him to 90 and 90. And at one of those meetings, I heard someone share and I thought to myself, he would really make a great sponsor. And I was in the, I was at Park Street in Alameda and I, I it was Charlie R. 
and I asked to be my sponsor. And that man and I worked for, God, I want to say eight years, you know, going over the steps, doing the traditions, doing uh, all kinds of different books. Um, and he really helped me a lot. I could, I could tell, I told that man everything, everything, it's everything that I thought I would never tell another human being. And I've only done that to one other man. Um, he, Josh Charlie moved out to LA. So I, I grabbed a guy from men's single topic. Actually, he was, he was the um, temporary sponsorship coordinator. And I thought he was going to set me up with a sponsor, but no, he took me himself, which was okay too. I, I, I didn't care. I just needed a sponsor. And then, and that was during the pandemic. And when I'm doing my fourth step with him, there are some things in my fourth step that I did not want my wife to hear. And so I had to go out in the car to share it with him because we're all in the house together. And she understood it, but she still thought to her, she, I know she, in the back of her mind, it was like, you know, there's something he doesn't want me to know. And uh, there is. There's something I don't want her to know. There's something I won't speak, you know, publicly about just because she's in the program now and people gossip. Um, but I've worked with my sponsor with it. And uh, his first comment was, oh, great. Something else you can beat yourself up over. <laughs> was his comment to me. Great sponsor. Um, but life is really good right now. You know, um, I truly believe that my higher power is in charge of my life, that I don't have to really worry about where my life is headed on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it, 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 it allows me to really be quite serene, quite frankly. Um, I used to be a lot more of a type A person. Um, and, and you know what, service helps a lot with that. Um, I, we, we took, uh, I did the hotline chair individually, and then um, I got someone to take the chairmanship, and then they, they couldn't continue it. So Miriam and I together took it as co-chairs. And then just recently, we got Paul to take it over, and um, he's doing a bang-up job, and, and we're, we're, we're backing him up um, you know, as, as needed. Um, but there's also the chips. When I was going through CDRP, um, I was getting my four month and no meetings were giving four months. And you know what? I worked damn hard for that month. So I would go out to um, the anonymous place in Walnut Creek on Main Street, it was a little bookstore, a little sobriety bookstore, it's no longer there, but they also sold chips. So I'd go out each month that I, that I couldn't get like a, a three or a six or a nine and get my chip. Well, I saw other people coming up through CDRP that also weren't getting that recognition. And I felt, you know what? I have the means to purchase extra chips. Why don't I purchase extra chips and, um, and give them away? And, and that's where the roving chipmunk started. Um, when the pandemic hit, we closed down central office. Um, they were discounting everything in central office. Um, and they were discounting the chips to 15%. So with Miriam's, with Miriam's blessing, we went down there and bought $2,500 for the chips. <laughs> And let me tell you, all, they were all fancy chips because I've got plenty of bronze chips. But the thing was, is that we were having a lot of friends that were coming up with, you know, multiple years, multiple decades of sobriety. And we didn't have the chips 
you know, fancy ones to give them. So we wanted to stock up on all the fancies. Um, I didn't used to stock fancy chips, but now we do fa stock fancy chips. I used to just do the bronze and the aluminum. Um, but, you know, that's every month, every year from 24 hours to 65 years in both founders and traditional. And, and then it got to a point where people weren't being able to get their chips because we had no in-person meetings. So we started mailing the chips and we did that for quite a while until central office actually was able to get back together over at Rockridge and get a bookstore together. And then we, we kind of put out notice that, you know what, we're actually taking away from the revenue from central office by continuing to do this. And we, we asked each fellowship to, to please put together a service position where they could mail out their own chips. And, and we helped a lot of, of those um, get their things going and providing them information as to, where to get the sleeves and, you know, and, and things like that. And, um, it's very gratifying. We still do it. There's still, I, I get, there's a guy in Canada that's, he's got, I think he's got eight months now. Uh, we've been doing every month. Yeah. It's really great because you get a, you get an email every month for, for some of these people that are just, you know, just getting through their first year. And when they do get their year, I ask them, I go, can my wife and I come and present you your one-year chip in person? It's uh, really warms my heart and, and tears my eyes. <laughs> um, and so that really has kept me going. Um, I, don't, I don't have a real service commitment in a meeting per se. Yeah, I can't think of one. Well, oh, no, I'm in a group for... Um, Park Street, but you know, as far as secretary or host or anything like that goes, uh, we were hosting and secretarying a lot of meetings when the when the pandemic was in its was in its real you know in in heyday of it. I love Zoom meetings. I love the fact that sometimes I'm working at five a.m. and at six thirty I can you know put my earpiece in and 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 check into the meeting and and hear hear a speaker and hear people share and, and occasionally even you know, raise my hand and share myself. Kind of depends if I'm running a job or not. Um, like last Friday, Park Street 6.30 a.m. meeting, had a great speaker. And I just decided, you know what? I'm the only one on the job. I'm going to go out to my truck. I'm going to take 10, 15 minutes of my break time and take it now at 6.30 instead of at 9 that I normally would take it and listen to the speaker. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working in a, a lower level area under a theater and there's no service down there. So, but normally I would just have my earpiece in and I'd be working. And sometimes other guys would give me shit about it. And I'm like, you know what? My sobriety comes first. I go, I will fucking quit this job if it means, you know, continuing my sobriety. And I've, I've, I had a good job of 14 years that uh, the boss wanted me to go down to LA and, and, and live out of a hotel after I had a house set up two, two miles from the job site, that was going to be only $85 per man. And the allowance was 150 a man. And that was the agreement. If I found something less than the allowance that he would do it. And then last second, he said he wouldn't do it. I said, well, you can find someone else to do the job. And he's like, well, your services are no longer needed. <laughs> but you know what? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm so glad I don't have that job anymore. It's like, you know, it, it's, 
it, it gave me the opportunity to do what I did that I can't tell my wife about, okay? Let me just put it that way. Um, and it was traveling all over the world doing Apple computer stores. And I love to travel, um, but I'm, I'm really glad that I don't have to keep a good bag packed. I've had as, I had as little as two hours notice I had to get on a plane, you know? So I don't have to do that anymore. I mean, this company I'm working for right now, I have a job up in Eureka. And my wife's like, no. No, you're not going. No, I'm like, well, can we even talk about it? <laughs> so there was a time when I would say my wife was enormous. She's got a little, uh, about four and a half years, four and three quarters of years under her belt. And after her mom died, she started drinking alcoholically. And I had a real hard time with that. I would just tell her to shut the fuck up and she'd start slurring the words and stuff. And I reached out to some of my, my buddies at Men's Single Topic and, uh, that's the men's group I go to Tuesday nights at eight, Coolidge and MacArthur. And they're like, well, you know, you probably should go to Al-Anon. So I started going to Al-Anon. And, you know, most Al-Anon meetings are, there's a lot of women in Al-Anon meetings. And nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that because my wife was jealous of it. And after a while, she's like, okay, well, what are they teaching you in Al-Anon? I'm like, well, they're teaching me not to make any big changes the first year of my, my going to Al-Anon. I was going to say sobriety. And she goes, okay. I go, she goes, like, what does that mean? I go, well, that means, honey, that if you're still drinking a year from now, I'm leaving. He's like, I stuck with you for 20 years of your drinking and using, of you draining our bank account on a monthly basis where I had to run to my parents and get money to pay the mortgage payment. And you're telling me that you're going to leave after a year? I go, yeah, honey, I am not you. And you know what? She went into AA. She found a group of women at Park Street, Mondays at 7 p.m. Serenity Sisters, I believe it's called. Great group of women. Yeah, yeah, yes, they used to call themselves a tribe, and now they don't call themselves a tribe anymore. I think they're called the corporation. <laughs> I've, I don't know. They keep, you know, they have the prerogative. <laughs> but it's such a good group of women. They went to Turks and Caicos for SVI Sober, sober um, Week. Last year, they're going down to Cancun, I think, um, in January, February. And uh, she asked if she could go. I'm like, honey, I'm not in charge of you. Hell, I'm not even in charge of myself. You do what you want to do. I'll, I'll take care of my side of the street. You take care of your side of the street. You know, and we have a, we have a great life. I mean, other than... Um, you know, my, my daughter lives in our house. She's 29 years old, but she's over here like every day. And I was really having a hard time with it. And I was letting it show. And she said something to me, mm, I want to say about a half a year ago. She said, you know, I figured, you know, when I got in, when I got into talking about herself, when, when she got into this abusive relationship with this, this man, um, she figured it was okay because she saw the relationship that me and her mom had, i.e. that I was abusive to my wife and that it had been going on for a long time. Therefore, the abusive relationship she was involved in, that it could last for a long time. And you know what? That really hit me and it really made me change my ways. And I really, though it does irk me when like now we have Mondays and Fridays are like date night where she's not supposed to come over, but there's still sometimes she comes over. So it's only on those two days if she comes over. So I say to myself, 
what the fuck's going on? And my wife says the same thing because it's just our little bit of peace of mind um, or, you know, mental, mental health break. Um, I mean, she's working, she's working through the, the PTSD that she has from the abuse that, 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 that man that she was dating for many years put her through and getting, you know, her getting counseling for it is, is difficult. Um, so, but, but I've gotten a lot better. I, I worked on it with my sponsor and I honestly look at her in a much lovely, much more loving way nowadays. She sees it. She recognizes it. My wife sees it. She recognizes it. Um, and it feels good. It really does. Though I have to be honest, sometimes if it's Wednesday or third Friday and I see her car sitting here, I'm like, God damn it. So what's going on? It's date night. <laughs> so I'm just going to be honest about that. Um, what else can I say? Um, I have. So my sponsor of my last two and a half years turns out he's been drinking full time. And he let uh, he let the group. Well, he basically got busted um, a couple months ago. So he came clean. So I've got a sponsor, but he's only through Zoom. He's uh, in, from New Hampshire. So there's a guy in the, the guys' night out meeting. That's the uh, the Thursday 7 p.m. meeting at, at Park Street. It's only only Zoom right now. We tried to do the hybrid thing, but no one was showing um, physically. So we shut we shut the that part of it down. Um, but you know, he shared something the other day about his ego. And I thought to myself, you know what? He, he sounds just like, I, I'm hearing myself through his share, him talk about his ego. He had done something really good. He was supposed to get his commendation, but he was on medical leave at the time. And his boss said, you have to leave this meeting because you're on medical leave and you can't get your commendation. And um, he was just saying how he wanted that. He wanted that commendation. His ego needed it. I think to myself, you know what? I, I, I feel like that a lot of times too. And I thought, you know what, I wanna, I'm gonna ask him to be my sponsor. So this last Thursday, I was at the meeting and he was there and he was sharing how always all the fellow employees at the company are now treating him like shit because of his commendation and how that's affecting him and everything. And I'm like, God, I don't know if I wanna ask to be my sponsor now. <laughs> so I, did, I didn't pull the trigger, but I did tell him during the meeting, that his original share four weeks ago really touched my heart. And it really, it really made me think that that was, that's the kind of sobriety I want. And it's a crosstalk and courage meeting. So he, he immediately said, well, you know what? I think the same thing about your sobriety. I'm like, God damn it. That's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> you know, so I didn't pull the trigger, but I, I'm going to, um, you know, he may not accept he, he's, I know he has other sponsees. So, I mean, when I picked my last sponsor, I wanted a sponsor that would really put my feet to the flame and make me do homework because I wanted the sobriety that my, my wife has. And she, I mean, she's got a great sobriety and she does a lot of homework, a lot of writing. So I wanted a, a sponsor that was gonna make me do the same things. And I shopped around and I thought I had found a guy that would, that would take me through the steps in that manner. And we did some writing, we did go through the steps but then it turns out he'd been drinking the whole time. So it's like, um, I remember at one point he'd, he'd given me this, the suggestion that 
it's not lying if I don't disclose everything to my wife. So she felt that um, lie, by, but it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's just lying by omission. And I, I clarified later saying, you know, he wasn't telling me to do it. He was just saying, you know, hypothetically speaking, it was okay. <laughs> she, she didn't, she didn't buy into it. I, I can be a little manipulative to my detriment, you know, and nowadays, I mean, I don't lie. Um, yeah. Do I admit some things? Yeah, I admit some things, but I will not say, I won't, you know, say a bold faced lie. And it's really nice because I don't have to keep a list of lies in my truck. Like I used to do when I was drinking and using because I couldn't keep my fucking story straight. Um, and because I would just lie about everything. And she's so naive that she, it was easy. You know, I couldn't get away with that with 95% of people out there, but I was able to get away with it with her. Um, but I don't, I don't lie to her anymore. Yes. Do I admit things? Yeah, I still do. Just certain things. Like if I get injured at work and it's not noticeable, you know, I don't want her to worry about it. You know, so I'm not going to tell her about it. You know, is that lying? You know, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> Stop shaking your head, Izzy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny too, because the other day, like we're, not, we're always supposed to tell each other about our injuries, right? So the other day, my left foot kept going numb. So I finally came clean to her. And wouldn't you know it? She said the same thing to me. She said, oh, my foot's been going numb too. I go, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to, 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 you know, tell everyone, tell each other about our conditions. She's like, you know, I just figured I'm getting old and you're getting old and there's going to be things that we're going to get old about. And, you know, yeah, we're supposed to share everything, but no, I didn't share it either. So yeah, I guess we're even on that one. <laughs> but we, we do have a great life. We go camping every, every month. Um, that's our mental health break from my father-in-law. And uh, we have a we have a great time, we have a great life. She does service a lot too. She helps me with the hotline with a um with our we have one shift on the hotline Tuesdays um from three to six p.m. And hotline's a great service. I mean, uh, there are open shifts right now. If anyone wants to, you can. Uh, there's an email on on the um on the website. I think it's phone chair at eastbayaa.org. And Paul D will respond to you. Two of the shifts are really crappy shifts. I'll be honest. They're two a.m. to six a.m. But um, you know, if you're not working or if you're retired, um, you can you can a lot of times get the person in front of you to sign you on, so you don't even have to wake up to sign on. And then if the phone rings, then you wake up and answer the phone. You know, it, it's not too bad. The last couple of times we filled the shift, we got one or two calls uh, and that was it. Granted, sometimes they're from a wet drunk um, being it's two to 6 a.m. <laughs> so, you know, you try to give them their time um, to, to, to share what they need to share. And then, you, you know, I, I usually just say, you know, you know, I ask them, do you want to stop drinking? Do you want to get sober? And if they say yes, then I'll say, you know, the, the usual spiel. We suggest that newcomers go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor, work with steps, be of service and work with others. You know, just try to get that through to them. 
And it's really fulfilling sometimes when you get through to someone, you know, you've let them share for 20, 30 minutes and you've listened well and you've given feedback and, and then they're spent and then you're able to just say a little bit, you know, cause it, it's a, it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And, um, like if they shared something, you know, really, you know, that, that like, like the, in a fourth step, like, like esque manner, and then you do the same. And then they see that, you know, that you're human too, and that you know where they're, they're been, you know, that, that you've, you've walked, you've walked that, that road in their steps. And you kind of can, you kind of can, can sense that they've come around a little bit, you know, and some have definitely, I mean, I have a sponsee that's coming up on three years that the first year of his sobriety was only through zoom, got him through the, over the hotline. And I was one of three men that responded to him. Um, he asked me to be a sponsor. We did, we did almost all the steps over the phone. Then we transferred to zoom and, uh, you know, it, it could be done. It just, it, it just takes, Honestly, willingness, open-mindedness, you know, just, I mean, I got so, when I, that January 13th, 2005, I was going to see, I was in CRP, but I've been drinking and using every day because they hadn't tested me. And I was in a meeting at Park Street and the topic was honesty. And it hit me like a bolt out of, out of the lightning. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm not, I, I, I don't have 30 days. I, I don't have a day. I've been drinking and using every day after CRP. And that's just me being honest. That's the topic of the meeting. And then I went to CRP that next Monday and I was honest then. And that's when my sobriety, that, that, that meeting at Park Street is when my sobriety started.